Welcome to the one-on-one with one and only sports podcast. I'm your host, Theo Wan. Every person has a story to tell, and this podcast hopes to give an opportunity for those in the sport world to share their unique story. Each week, I interview a new guest to come on the show, and we talk about how they got to where they are in the sport world, what their daily life looks like, some misconceptions people have about their role, and we end with a fun rapid-fire segment to close the episode. If that sounds like something for you, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. New episodes come out every Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by Julia Peden Designs. Need a design project done? Look no further than Julia Peden. She is a freelance multimedia designer who helps bring your ideas to life. She specializes in developing unique brands and logos for your business to stand out from the pack. The one and only sports logo was created by Julia and I absolutely love it. She helped me establish a brand and has provided ongoing professional advice for me to keep everything looking fresh and consistent. You can check out her projects and other works at juliapeden.com. That's J-U-L-I-A-P-E-D-N.com. Now with all that done, let's go. Welcome to episode 8 of the podcast. Today's guest is Ashwin Patel. Ashwin is the mental skills coach for the Guelph Storm of the Ontario Hockey League and the Utica Comets of the American Hockey League. The Comets are the AHL affiliate of the Vancouver Canucks of the NHL. Ashwin has a PhD in sport and exercise psychology from the University of Tennessee. He is currently a professor and program coordinator of sport management and recreation and leisure services programs at Humber College in Toronto. He is the co-founder of sportandwell.com with Dr. Noah Genter. Here is my interview with Ashwin Patel. All right, Ashwin, thanks for coming on the show today. How are you doing? I'm well, Theo. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Excited to have you on the show. The first question I have for you is, you are the mental skills coach for two hockey teams. Can you tell the listeners at home how you got to where you are today? What events or people were involved in getting you to where you're at now? It's a... It's a long story, uh, which is, I guess, good for these type of formats. And with a lot of people trapped in their houses right now, maybe they're going to be okay with listening to this. So I began uh, this like, this process. Like, I've always had an interest in the mental side. I was a middling player myself. I wasn't very uh, great at a lot of different things. But tennis was the one sport that I, I, I seemed to play at a, a, at a reasonably high level. I was always I struggled with the mental side of my own performance. I had a hard time letting go of mistakes. I had uh, I put a lot of pressure on myself, and so I was always interested on the mental side. Like, and I played with players that had the million dollar body, and then they had the ten cent mind. And then conversely, I played with people that had the ten cent body and the million dollar mind, and the ten cent body won. And I was fascinated by those individuals that just understood and were able to rise the occasion, play well, etc. Because I didn't have that, particularly when I was in a junior and then in my, my late teenage years. I, I struggled with that a great deal. And I ended up then deciding that this was kind of the path that I wanted to pursue. I went to the University of Guelph. 94, uh, was a psychology major, so go Griffins, uh, and I learned, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot from my psychology classes, but the, oddly enough, the funniest thing is the class I least liked in my undergraduate experience was my sports psych class. And, you know, it, 
nothing to do with the necessarily the faculty member. I just didn't really like the way that it was respectfully taught. And that makes a big deal. And there was not really much of a connection there. And uh, I talked to other classmates and they felt that similarly. Now, the funny thing is that I spoke to a couple people within the last three years that took the exact same course 20 years later and had the exact same experience at the University of Guelph. So <laughs> not great. Times have not changed, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, as a as a professor uh, myself, uh, I know that uh, you got to make changes as the years go on, and uh, maybe in this case it didn't. But regardless, I still was fascinated by the content. And so I went to, I, I applied to a bunch of different places for graduate school. And at that time, I, you know, unfortunately, my mom was uh, was diagnosed with terminal cancer, so I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to go. And it, I boiled down my decision to University of Ottawa, which has a brilliant program, and uh, University of Tennessee. Now, the, the fun part of that is both of those locations were eight hours away. So living in Chatham, eight hours north was Ottawa, and eight hours south was Knoxville. And my parents both said, and my mom particularly uh, said, Ash, listen, I'm not going to be here uh, in a year. You got to make a decision that's best for you, and why not go to a country where everything revolves around sport? And that was why I made the decision at the University of Tennessee. I really had a, a good feeling when I went there. I visited there. I met with Dr. Craig Risberg, who was the who led the program, created the program, and I just liked the conversation. I liked the, the you know, kind of like how you and I were chatting before, but when you're making your way down to Ball State, you get that feeling when you when you meet with faculty members or other, other individuals, and that helps make you decide whether or not this is something you want to explore. So a long-winded way of saying, I made my way down to University of Tennessee in fall of 2000 uh, to do my master's there, and liked it so much I stayed and completed my PhD. Now, the first two and a half years I was there, like a lot of the other graduate students, I wanted to work with the athletes. There were assistantships on campus where you were going to have the opportunity to work with some of the, the teams. And so I thought this was going to be my, my opportunity. I'm going to be able to be one of those people. I'll work with the tennis team. And I just had it in my head, this is what I was going to do. And got great advice from my professor, uh, Craig Risberg, who just said, you're not ready. And in part of this is a reputation of a, an organization where I have to make sure that you're ready to be able to work with athletes. And uh, at the time, I wasn't. And I, I took it fairly well. Like, I was disappointed, but the people that ended up earning the assistantships were better and were more mature and were ready to be able to work with those populations. And he brought me aside and said, Ash, listen, I know you're disappointed about not getting it, but there's going to be so many other opportunities for you. And from there, he started giving me opportunities to work with high school kids. And that is where I started my work. And I worked initially with tennis uh, and some soccer players. And then from there, I graduated and worked with some motocross uh, athletes. And through that time, I was able to kind of get my reps. And I made so many mistakes. And I, as I share in classes with, uh, with you, I make them continuously. But what I found beneficial from that was that I started learning from the coaches. I started learning from the players. I started understanding that there are a lot of overlapping commonalities with regards to mental demands and challenges across sports. 
so I could maybe take some concepts when working with a motocross rider and apply that when working with a soccer player, etc. And so for about a year, that's what I did. And that was about 2002 to 2003 and change. And then uh, everything kind of changed uh, in December of 2002 when my professor was asked by the head coach of the Knoxville Ice Bears, who at the time were in the Atlantic Coast Hockey League uh, that eventually became the Southern Professional Hockey League. And the head coach came in and he brought a player with him to speak with Dr. Risberg. And Doc was nice enough to say, Ash, why don't you sit in? And I don't know if he just felt sorry for me or if I was the only Canadian in the program, but either way, it's something that is, I, I remember exactly where I sat. I remember the experience and the the coach kind of shared some of the things that he would like some assistance with and asked Dr. Risberg if he'd be willing to kind of help out. And Dr. Risberg's like, I'm like, you know, I really appreciate the offer, but I'm really busy. And he can, Dr. Risberg was a world-renowned sports psych person, and I don't think he was going to do, he's done enough pro bono work in his life. I just don't know if that was the, the right opportunity for him to do it. But he said, listen, I've got a Canadian here who loves hockey and would be a great resource. And so that, that started it for me. So I, the first three months, so I, I, I started visiting them in January of 2003. And for the remainder of the season, I just helped out. I, I went to almost every single practice, filled water bottles, helped fold towels, did the laundry, any task. I was just excited to be there. And part of it was I missed hockey. I missed being around other Canadians. I And I just wanted to learn. And I, I got the opportunity, which I really appreciated from the, the Ice Bears organization. And after the first year, they asked me to come back and start working a little bit more with the guys. And it was primarily meetings once a month, and I'd just bring in some documents and hand them out to people and uh, did some team building, but not much. And most of it was individual-based work. And that was kind of the, the start. So for two and a half years, worked with the guys, worked with the coaching staff, and really just learned. You know, I I, I think I... Had it was grounded enough to know that I didn't know a ton and particularly was not an expert in hockey. Again, I grew up loving hockey, season tickets for the Red Wings growing up. Like I, I, I've been to a lot of games and I've, I've studied the game quite a bit, but I'm not remotely, you know, that, that level of knowledge. But I really asked the players, what works? When do you struggle? What goes through your mind? So a lot of it was just information gathering and, uh, you know, any athletes that I still work with today, I think I ask them more questions than they ask me. And it's partly just because they are the experts. And I, you know, I can continue to say that the, the players are the expert and my job is to be able to help them understand that. So that's the beginning of three and a half years of working with the Knoxville Ice Bears. And after being the number one team for a couple of seasons and not making our way through, we finally won the championship my last year there, which was a, a, a surreal and exciting experience uh, to be able to witness that and see the guys that had had some heartbreak the last couple of seasons to be able to win. So that's a, that's that part with regards to, to, to Knoxville. No, that's sweet. Thanks uh, for sharing that, Ashwin. And just uh, for those listening at home, just hearing about Ashwin willing to take opportunities and, and just taking those chances to go and volunteer and learn is a really good thing. So thank you for sharing that. 
And now that you're working with the Guelph Storm, what were some events that led up to to you working with Guelph? As you mentioned, you went undergrad at Guelph from Chatham. So what's what are some events that led to you eventually being the mental skills coach for the Guelph Storm? Great question. I lived after Tennessee. I moved to Colorado, and for about eight years, I taught at a university there, and I loved it. To be completely honest with you, I, I, that was it. I was not leaving. I, you know, I could teach a class and go snowboard. I played hockey six nights a week. It was fantastic. The only thing that wasn't fantastic about it was that it's a town of 6,000 people and I was single. And I eventually, uh, was able to meet my wife, Anna, and who moved from Denver down three and a half hours to my little mountain town in Gunnison. And we, we were there and we, we loved it. And for a couple of years, it was great. And then we ended up having kids. And afterwards, we just kind of decided that this was uh, not the place we wanted to raise our family. Her family's from Minnesota. Mine's from now live in Toronto. So we decided to move closer to family. So that brought me back to Guelph. And I was fortunate enough at the time uh, to be able to get a job at Humber uh, in the sport management program. My my best friend uh, teaches uh, uh, in the uh, uh, at Humber as well. And he was my roommate in, in Knoxville, and so he kind of put a good word in and uh, was able to be able to get that job in, in Humber. But your question was asking about how do I got the opportunity in Guelph, and I think that was part of it, was that I had earned a, a PhD. I had uh, some experience working in minor league hockey, but the reality of the situation was that I I reached out to the, the former GM, Mike Kelly, after the passing of Dr. Neil Widmeyer, and he was the team sports psych person for 25 years, and uh, or 20 years or so, but again was a absolute, uh, you know, one of the pioneers in sports psychology in Canada. I had the fortune of having a conversation with him about 20 years ago when I was in the early stages of doing uh, like my master's degree. And that helped kind of instill that. So I, I just shared an email with Mr. Kelly and said, I, I, I'm so sorry for the loss of Dr. Widmeyer. And I'd mentioned that brief little story and said, uh, my condolences. And, you know, I ended the email with, if you would ever consider, you know, bringing somebody in, uh, I know I wouldn't be able to replace like what he has done for the organization. But I would do my best to to work and uh, try to keep his legacy um, or, or carry on his legacy. And when I did end up having a conversation with, with Mr. Kelly, said, you know, I appreciate that email. You know, in due respect for the family, we don't want to bring anybody in until the next season. And so I had a conversation with him afterwards. And one of the things that he shared was the the letter, uh, the email that I sent to him, just kind of noting you know, who was there before me and acknowledging his impact and influence on the team and, and the organization. And so that was important, I think, kind of showing reference and, and deference, sorry, to the individual that was there before. So I met with the coaching staff, uh, who at the time, uh, Jared Scaldi was the head coach. Todd Harvey and Luca Caputi were the two assistant coaches. So there was the 2016 season was my first year working with the team. Awesome. And uh, we're going to move on to you sharing some advice to someone maybe in a similar situation. They just graduated from a master's program. They want to get into their career. What What is some advice 
based on your experiences for someone in a similar situation? Putting yourself out there. It's, again, cliche and probably overstated, but I think that's the reality of it. I, I used to get bogged down when I was doing my master's and doing my PhD of, am I going to say the right thing? What if I come off as not too intelligent? They're going to find out I'm a fraud. All of these doubts and negative self-talk that was kind of creeping up in my mind, and what it ultimately ended up doing was just paralyzing myself, and I just didn't do anything. And I would just kind of wait for opportunities to occur. And I finally had some great colleagues and mentors throughout my time at the University of Tennessee. And uh, Dr. You know, Taryn Morgan, who's at IMG, and Vanessa Shannon, who's uh, the director of uh, mental skills at the University of Louisville. Those two in particular are just like, you got to get out there. You put yourself out there. You know what you're talking about. And you got to have confidence in your ability. I think, you know, our running joke is that the field of sports psychology, we have so many individuals that are phenomenal at what they do, but they also suffer from crises of confidence as well. And so that's just the reality is that even people I know that are like the best in the world at what they do, I'll overhear conversations or be lucky enough to be a part of a conversation where they're like, I don't know if they're going to want me back. And I'm baffled by that, but because I'm like, this person's the best person I've ever heard. And I've taken 80% of this person's stuff and used it, you know, used it while citing them, but that happens. So get out there, you know, connect on LinkedIn. Don't just jump right in and say, Hey, this is who I am. And I want to work for you. Try to start these relationships a little bit early to say, you know, I, I, I read this article that you wrote, or I saw this podcast or uh, you know webinar that you were a part of. I really like your thoughts on blank. I was wondering if we could possibly chat about that. What it does is it provides a connection that uh, that lets the individual know that, okay, this person isn't just asking about something. They've actually done a little bit of their homework. And then just get yourself out there. It, it you know, even now with some of the our students, they're like, well, if I don't get this internship with this organization, everything is done. I'm like, no, you, you know, Every opportunity is going to be made available if you put yourself out there. And it may take a little while, but, you know, as I said, I started with the Ice Bears in 2003. And then I got my opportunity with the Storm in 2016 and then with Utica in 2019. So it's 16 years apart from the SBHL all the way up to now the AHL. So it takes time. And as long as you're okay with that, great. Just get better, like each day, learn, like be humble. And Ashwin, that's definitely one thing I admire about your story is just the willingness to put yourself out there, moving from the Southern Professional Hockey League to the OHL and AHL. So that's definitely a testament to this idea of putting yourself out there and working hard. So thank you for sharing that. We're going to move to segment two, which is day-to-day life. Uh, On this podcast, we really like talking about what day-to-day life looks like for different roles in the sport world. So starting with your current position with the Utica Comets, what does the day-to-day life look like on, let's say, a practice day compared to a game day? What, what does that look like from start to finish? So with Utica, I'm there a couple of times a month. So when I'm there, it's for about two to three or four days. So on a practice day, let's just say Monday, uh, because usually they play on a Saturday, they get the Sunday off, and they come in on the Monday. 
if it's a Monday morning and I am on site, what I will do is I will get up, you know, around six in the morning, you know, go for a quick little workout and then get my notes ready, like mentally kind of what I want to be, uh, get myself present because it's a long day. Normally those days when I'm on site, it's about 12 to 14 hour days uh, minimum and where I'm kind of in and out of meetings and conversations. So I get to the rink around 7, 7.30-ish, uh, and then uh, Coach Trent Call will have a uh, a meeting with the, the coaching staff. And and this includes the strength and conditioning, conditioning coach, the video coach, the athletic therapist, uh, pretty much whoever's on site, including the equipment managers, who are both brilliant at what they do. And I just sit in and listen. And really, they, it's like a temperature in the room. They kind of go on and have conversations saying, okay, this person got injured on, on Saturday. You know, Roman, who's our athletic uh, trainer or therapist, you know, what did you see? What did you notice? How's he responding? What did the doctors say? And we kind of go on with all of the players uh, regarding that. And then after we have that, uh, you know, 30 to 45-minute uh, conversation, then the coaching staff then meet to discuss what their practice plans are going to be for that day. What do they want to focus on this week? And often they're looking at the opponent, but also areas in which they feel that they need to improve upon or strengthen. And then from there, around 8, 8.30, some of the guys start showing up. And uh, while the coaches are having their secondary meeting, uh, I will just kind of get up and meander. I'll pop into the the, the dressing room. Again, I, I try to be mindful that it's their room, so I don't go in there all that often, just out of respect for them. Like, I'll go in and get a coffee and then just say hello and then make my way out. Oftentimes, I'm in the trainer's room uh, because a lot of the guys get treatment before practice, so I'll spend some time there. Uh, or the video room where the guys are watching video clips from their, their game on Saturday night. Or the, the training room or the athletic uh, the workout room where some guys are getting their stretch uh, in or getting an early morning workout. So of those four places, I just kind of ping. And depending on, you know, I want to be respectful of, of Roman if he's having conversations with guys that are going through treatment. I don't want to be like over, you know, overstepping my, my, uh, my area there. So often I'll just kind of bounce around to those four places and then just make myself available. It's just mostly like chit chat. Uh, how you doing? How's your wife? How are your kids? What's been going on? I hear your parents were in town. What was that like? Where'd you go for dinner? A lot of it's just generic, uh, but I, in my opinion, I think that's some of the most important stuff. In in my role, it's it's a relationship uh, role, and if I don't develop relationships that are on based on trust, based on getting to know the people as people versus just for what they can provide, that's problematic. So I just end up listening and kind of checking in. Uh, after that, they usually are on the ice around 10 to 10:30. On the Monday, I usually go to the bench and I kind of help out. I keep the towels ready. I get the water bottles, you know, like on the on the end boards. So when they come in and have their little breaks, and oftentimes, you know, a couple guys will just say, "Hey, can you watch and just look how I'm responding if I make a mistake?" Like sometimes that happens, and other times I'm just there so I can hear what the coaching staff are saying. If it's a Tuesday, then I usually sit in the stands uh, with the uh, athletic therapist, the strength and conditioning coach, and the equipment managers and do a kind of a check-in with them. How are they doing? What's going on? What are they noticing? Things along those lines. Uh, it, it's a really great group of individuals. I, I, there's not 
egos uh, that are there. It's all about how can we help the players. So we are pretty open with our dialogue. Hey, I, I, I tried this. This seems to be working well. Or, hey, Roman, what do you see here? Or Nate, when they're in the workout room, who's engaged, who's withdrawn? And so part of that, we're just gathering information from each other. Now, again, I defer to them because they're there every day. I'm kind of in and out. So it's not like I have the, the with those individuals on a day-to-day basis. So I'm mindful of that. After that, there's a, a lunch that uh, the Comets provide their players. It's quite good. There's a, a nice little uh, room for them to eat. So I join them for, for lunch. And then afterwards, as the day kind of progresses, I make kind of appointments. Not I make appointments, but some of the guys would be like, hey, can we go for coffee? Can we go for a bite to eat? Now, the, the fantastic thing is that uh, Ryan Johnson, who's our GM, one of the things he asked, he's like, how can I help support you? I said, you know, if you can give me the options of being able to take players out off site uh, to be able to have coffees and dinners and lunches, that would be great because sometimes guys aren't going to be as willing to talk uh, on the ice. You know, Ryan was been fantastic in that area. Again, I haven't abused it. I haven't taken guys out for $200 <laughs> yeah. meals and fancy steaks and whatnot, but uh, I do think that has been uh, a really nice way of kind of getting to know the players, but also knowing that the players have a place to go to that's outside of the rink that they can feel comfortable and safe to talk. Well, it definitely um, sheds a, a clearer light on what what's happening with the Utica Comets and what your work is, because uh, I know sometimes you've had to to leave Humber to go do that. So it's good to know uh, what you're actually doing and uh, the impact you're making on those players. And so with Guelph, knowing that that's a bit more local, are you spending a little bit more time there? What does that look like in terms of some special events with Guelph, for example, the combine or training camp, those things? So it really depends. Uh, Last year in particular, I was with the team quite a bit. And as I'm sure you know, that's when they went on their run. They won the OHL championship. We also traded a lot of players and brought in a bunch of players. So it was a constant adjustment. And in any uh, organization or a, a you know team, injuries injuries and uh, can can change the dramatically change the environment of the team. But all of these trades as well can change that as well. So I was doing a lot of team building activities with the the guys on the team. Was talking a lot more with the coaching staff about how I can support them, the strength and conditioning coaches, the athletic trainer, uh, the equipment managers, the video coaches, etc. We were constantly kind of communicating to see what's going on, how things are going, etc. My role uh, with with the storm has grown over the years, uh, which has been great, and I, you know, I, I'm in the draft room. This is the this will be the fourth year I'm in. The, well, I guess whatever the draft room is going to look like on the fourth. Mostly it's just the, I, I'm there as an observer. I, uh, we're working on questions to ask the players moving forward. We're kind of working on better ways of figuring out what players make sense for the Guelph storm. But as of right now, I'm just kind of sitting in and I'm listening to the scouts and listening to the GM and the coaching staff as they go through the process. Mostly it's just, it's really exciting. Like I, I just enjoy kind of learning and seeing how, uh, you know, how do the scouts evaluate? What is it that they do? Uh, and then how do they come to, to make those decisions? You know, the first round picks usually aren't that challenging because they have an idea of the players they want, but it's every round afterwards when you get 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th round, 
that are they still engaged? Who are they trying to get at? What's the philosophy, et cetera? So I have a, 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 a minimal role there. The couple weeks later is when they bring all the players in for the combine, and I do a talk with the parents as well as the players about you know, what my role is with the team, how I can help from an academic standpoint, how I can help out from a mental standpoint, et cetera, and just to let them know my availability, pass out my contact information, and also just to define what the heck mental training or sports psychology is, uh, because not all of them have had that experience, and I try to normalize it as much as possible. And then from there, uh, you know, training camp, uh, I'm there you know, quite a bit. Uh, I do the team building activities for the organization, so I arrange all of those. Uh, we've had them at my house. We've had them at another coach's house. Uh, again, just a bunch of activities there. So those are kind of the, the roles that I have had with the teams. Uh, and again, it, and then I'll go in maybe once or twice a month and do a talk based on a topic that the coaching staff would like me to discuss and then make myself available for lunches and dinners similar to Utica for the players and or the coaches to, uh, to get together and chat. And when you're meeting with the players, I love that you're meeting them off-site and kind of making them feel comfortable for a meal and such. So just as something that's of interest, would you be able to share what's an example of a technique you would give to a player who maybe has been on a goal-scoring drought? They've been really frustrated. What's an example of something you would tell them in a meeting? What would that look like? A great question. No, I mean, I, I don't name names, so it's, it's, I'm, I'm happy to share that because these will be kind of similar, uh, similar things that I would uh, discuss with any player. Uh, number one, I'd be asking, when they're playing really well, what are they focusing on? What are they doing? How are they moving on the ice? And when, and again, this happens all the time, is I'm struggling, I, I can't seem to put the puck in the net. And, I'm, and so I just ask them, so take me, tell me through that. Like, what, what's going on through your mind? How is this affecting uh, how you're playing? And I usually just listen to see what they say. Now, sometimes it's like, well, the, the team needs me to score. And so, I, again, I'm, as you know me fairly well, I'm pretty sarcastic. And so sometimes I have to understand the players that I'm working with because sarcasm doesn't work with everybody. But I... <laughs> I am mindful of that, and I'll say, well, are you, like, how many goals did Crosby score last year? Or how many goals did Taves? I, I ask them, like, who's your favorite player? And they always have an answer, you know, defensive, defenseman, goalie, you know, forward, etc. I said, well, how many goals did this person score last year? Well, they scored this number of goals, or they had this many assists. I said, okay, so they're less than a point per game, or just around a point per game. What else do you think those players do when they're not contributing offensively? What can they do? Uh, if it's a center, like, how good are they on the faceoff? Okay, so where's your focus on the faceoff? Can you control that? Yeah. Okay. Can you control your effort on the defensive zone? Yeah. Can you control your forechecking, backchecking, et cetera, et cetera? Yep, yep, yep. So, you know, with the people that I know can handle the sarcasm, I'll always say, are you that bad of a hockey player that you need to feel good to play good? And that's usually the, you know, gets a, no, no, I can, you know, the, the response gets a little defensive. And so I said, you know, the other part with confidence is that A, it's a choice, but it's also B, can you, like, what else can you be focusing on? Can you focus on your footwork? What's your breathing like? 
because as you you know this, you could have the best shot you've ever taken in your entire life, and then it gets deflected off of a blocker, or it hits somebody else's stick and goes wide, and you could have the worst, weakest shot you've ever had, and it fools the goalie and it goes in. Sometimes you can do all the right things and it's still not going to result in the outcome that you desire. And, you know, once you kind of let that go and just focus on, did I do the one to two things that are in my control during a shift? And then if you say yes to those things, then you can move on. That's the reality of it is you have to move on anyway. And so that's, that's, that's kind of a technique that I'll use with the players. Again, is controllable, uncontrollable. And what do you do to make yourself an effective player? And I share the story with Eric Lindros that when he felt that he wasn't scoring what he chose to do, earlier in his career, he would get really upset. And he would take penalties that weren't the best for the team. Uh, but then when he matured a bit, what he started to do was, well, I can clear up space. I'm bigger than most guys. So I can clear up space. I can focus on my face-offs. And I can focus on my passing and setting up Renberg or McClaire or, you know, Recky or whoever it was that he was on line, line mates with. And that's where his focus was. So often if we focus away from ourselves, right, it becomes a little less stressful for ourselves. How can I help others? And that's one of the things that seems to resonate with the guys, or at least that's what they've shared with me. Yeah, there are a couple things you said there that resonate with me. One, knowing your players each player is going to respond differently. So that's good to know that you can handle some with sarcasm and some that can't. You just got to be a little bit more uh, maybe softer or just approach them differently. And uh, the second thing that was really interesting as well is just being able to focus on the controllables. I think that's something that a lot of athletes can struggle with is looking at goals or outcome-based goals that are sometimes beyond your control. So being able to forecheck and backcheck, those are things you can control. So that's good to hear. And that segues well into our third section about misconceptions. I know many people are going to wonder, what is a mental skills coach? What does that even mean? So what are some misconceptions you've heard about your job title? And what would you say to them? Well, there's a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty misunderstood. I, I mean, you've got the old school coaches. And I've I've had people introduce me into their teams and say, I think sports psychology or mental skills training is insert swear word. And, but I kind of like this guy. So why don't you listen to him for 10 <laughs> to 15 minutes? And so my response is always like, well, thanks for that warm introduction. And then just kind of go from there. So one of the introduction, like one of the challenges or misconceptions are that if I come in, there's something wrong. And I think that really is, it's changing in our industry. And, but I do think that's an important thing to clarify with the players. Like I come in and I let them know, like, I am not a psychologist. I am a, again, my doctorate is in sport and exercise psychology, but the term psychologist is a protected term and only individuals that based on the state or the province that you're in, uh, can legally call themselves that. So I, I am not a psychologist. I, you know, my, you know, in the either a mental performance coach, a mental conditioning coach, a mental skills coach. That's kind of what I do. My 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 focus is on performance. My performance isn't on any underlying neuroses or more serious mental conditions uh, that psychologists and psychiatrists are going to be qualified and skilled to be able to assist you with. 
I would always refer out whenever, because you know, I've had students uh, or athletes that have had suicidal ideations. I've had, uh, that have had serious, uh, depression. Um, those individuals I will listen to, but then I refer out almost immediately just to make sure that they know that people that are actually qualified to be able to handle those questions. So that's another misconception. Uh, but the other part of it is, uh, in terms of the misconceptions is that I come in and it's a magic wand. That, all right, Ash is here. Okay, 20 minutes later, we're all going to be mentally tough. It doesn't work that way. Like the analogy that, that I didn't come up with, but it, it's, you know, I, I, I mean, you've seen me. I, 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 I jokingly go in and I say, how many of you can go to the weight room and lift weights once and be jacked? And like, I don't need to lift weights again because I'm so strong. And I said, well, that's the exact same thing with mental conditioning. You can't just do visualization for one day and then all of a sudden you don't need to do it again. It takes training. It is something that should be ingrained in everything that you do uh, because I view performance from a holistic perspective, not just siloed where strength conditioning is strength conditioning and you know mental is mental and nutrition is nutrition. It's all the same. It's all kind of the, you think of it as the, the spoke on the wheel and the athlete is in the center of that wheel and all the spokes that lead out to the rim are all the other uh, individuals that are trying to help the athlete perform at their best. So the, miscon- you know, the other misconception is that I can kind of create or, or fix them with a magic wand. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. I'll have guys that, you know, I, I try to reach out to and then all of a sudden it's the day before the playoffs and they want to have a two-hour conversation. And uh, that just doesn't work very well. So it takes time. That's another misconception. Another misconception is that whatever the players tell me, then I'm going to go tell the coach. And that does not happen. The coaching staff and both organizations know this. I'm very adamant about it, is that it's going to be a one-way conversation. The coach and I can have a lot of conversations, but then I have a conversation with the player. That doesn't go back to the coach. And, you know, if it's a, a serious thing that may involve like, like harm or anything along those lines, or like legal, 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 yeah, yeah. then I will absolutely, uh, like inform other individuals. But for the most part, no. And it's been great that both times, like both coaches of the organizations that I work with have shared that with their players. Listen, if I'm in the office and I'm talking with Ash, it's because I want to talk to Ash about making myself a better coach and a better communicator. So it's nothing to do with you. And, you know, again, I don't want to know if Ash is talking to you or about these type of things. He's like, I just support it and want to let you know that it's important for us to, uh, to, to create that environment where openness and communication is there. So those are kind of the main miscommunications. And to follow up with that, Ash, what do you think the trend looks like in terms of mental skills coaching from just a general pro level across the major sports leagues? Is that something you're seeing more teams doing or is that something you're seeing teams shying away from? It depends on the sport. I think baseball actually, Major League Baseball put that in their collective bargaining agreement, the last uh, collective bargaining agreement that they had, that every team has to have a, uh, a mental skills coach. Now, I think they said mental health professional so I think it led the, led the teams to be able to decide which they choose. But you have teams like the Blue Jays that have five people. The Rays have six people. A lot of organizations are, are, are moving towards it. it. How I view it is how similar to strength and conditioning, 
how it eventually found its way into college and university and professional organizations in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, I believe that the mental skill side is going to be viewed at in a similar way moving forward. You know, the, the challenge, of course, is, I mean, not the challenge. Well, it is a challenge. I think you have a, a lot of organizations that are efforting on uh, trying to provide the best opportunities for, for their athletes. And I do know that that's one of the things that Utica does really well in Vancouver is because Vancouver's got a guy, um, uh, Alex Hodgkins, who's fantastic, who's the, the, their mental skills guy up at the NHL level. But it's a recruiting tool. You know, the, a bunch of the players that are on Utica that played in other organizations have said that we don't have this. We didn't have this in my other teams. And that's not to negate other NHL or AHL teams, but it's a separator. And, you know, my thought is that I always like to, to use the analogy, are you protecting the investment that you're putting in your respective players? If you've got, like in the NFL, you've got $200 million payrolls. Can you bring in a, a mental skills person for $150,000 a year? Is that a way to protect the investment in $200 million? To me, that sounds like a pretty smart investment. If you think of it, it's like a million dollars for a registered dietitian, a chiropractic care, just all the medical support staff individuals, it's a million dollars to protect $200 million? Uh, I think that's a, a logical thing to do. So I'm, I'm seeing this improve. Uh, a lot of the elite level soccer teams, you know, the all blacks are known for having their, their mental skills coaches. Like it's, it's, it's improving. And, you know, my hope is that you're seeing more universities in, in Canada, uh, to be applying and, and bringing in those people aboard as well. Yeah. Being with the University of Guelph a little bit, you see, and across Ontario University Athletics, there is a movement towards um, celebrating mental health awareness. Just with Bell Let's Talk games, for example, this year, there were a lot of those across the OUA. So it's good to see that just in a mainstream level, that's just the word is getting out about it. And then hopefully teams can actually implement that with an actual coach inside. So that's good to hear, Ash. So, um, okay, now we're going to move to segment number four, Rapid Fire. This is the fun segment here. Uh, I haven't prepped you with these questions beforehand, so we're just going to go to go out of here uh name your top three favorite sports teams and athletes of all time teams first and then players yeah let's do that favorite team of all time uh or it could just be the organization it doesn't have to be if you want to be specific and you want to go with the year that that would be even better because no one's done that yet so uh 1980 philadelphia phillies there you uh, go <laughs> as, you know, that that is what I, I played baseball when I was a little kid, when I was three and four years old, for about two to three hours a day in my yard. And the first baseball game I ever saw was the 1980 World Series, and the powder blue Phillies uniforms blew my mind. I was a third baseman, Mike Schmidt. If you've been in my office, I have Mike Schmidt bobbleheads. Uh, he was the man for me. So the 1980 World Series, they won their first World Series. Uh, that was it. That hooked me on baseball. So that's the number one team for me of all time. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not going to talk about hockey because there was another team that I loved, but, uh, because now I'm with the Vancouver organization, <laughs> I am not going to mention another team. Uh, the, in terms of basketball, it's the 76ers, uh, you know, the, the 1983 76ers when they won the world championship. But my favorite basketball player of all time was Charles Barkley. So Barkley to me, uh, the 93 Suns, uh, that team I followed as much as you could follow, not having 
more than four channels where I lived in Chatham. That was my team. And then the, uh, the 1991 Philadelphia Eagles. That, that was it. So again, a lot of Philadelphia themes, but, uh, those were my, those were my three favorite teams of all time. And the players of all time, Mike Schmidt, number one, Charles Barkley, number two, number three, probably Steve Nash. So those are the, those are the three athletes that I've, uh, loved and admired the most. Yeah, good old Canadian boy there, Steve Nash. Unfortunately, never won a world title, but won a couple MVPs, though. So Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So second question here, you're going to have to pick. You named a couple teams already, so this will be a, this will be interesting to see how you narrow it down. So what is your favorite sports moment in history? So you only can pick one now. Oh, that's easy. If it's one, it was the 2002 gold, uh, two, 2002 gold medal game. Okay. Uh, reason being is that, again, that my mom had recently passed away. Uh, I was living in Knoxville. It was the day before the quarterfinals, and I couldn't find any of the Team Canada games on on TV. I actually went to Dr. Risberg and said, I got to go home. And he's like, all right, what's going on? And I said, I, I'll be back. So I drove home and and watched the quarterfinal game with my father, uh, the semifinal game with my dad. We drove to Toronto and watched the gold medal game at a pub in downtown Toronto with my brother and one of my two sisters. And I remember just, again, my dad was uh, was an immigrant, came from Africa. Like Him and I bonded over hockey. He had no idea about hockey growing up, but he got season tickets for the Red Wings. So there's a confluence of a bunch of things that kind of, you know, figured it out. You know, Canada won a gold for the first time in 50 years. People were crying. My brother and all of his friends were those people that went out downtown Toronto and played pickup street hockey for the rest of that evening. They weren't the looters. They were the ones that were just pretty drunk. <laughs> they were the looters. Uh, <laughs> it's a good distinction to make. <laughs> yes. No, I wanted to make sure that was clear. So that experience, I remember just being there and sharing it, and I remember... In 98, my mom and I staying up until at, at 4 in the morning, I think, when Canada lost in the shootout against the Czech Republic. Yes, Dominic Hasek. It, Hasek just stole it, and he was just brilliant. Yep. And I remember just being devastated with my mom, and then like the emotions of watching it with my dad, knowing how excited my mom would have been had she still been alive. So that's that's it. And then I'd say a close second would be the 08 World Series um, when the Phillies won, uh, again, it was a year after my dad passed away. And so I remember like, how much he knew I loved the Phillies. And, you know, he called me, uh, cause Phillies in, in 07 got knocked out by the, uh, uh, by the Rockies, which was just horrible living in Colorado and the bandwagons, uh, fans that were there. But he called me afterwards and was just like, I'm sorry to hear that they didn't win. And, then a year later they win, but you know, my dad had just passed. So I just didn't have that experience to be able to share that with them. But cause him and I went to game one of the world series when they played the, the blue Jays in 93. Oh, no way. The Joe Carter series. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got to rub it in. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know you're asking rapid fire and I'm just giving you long winded answers. Oh, it's all good. Since you sat in my class for the whole semester, you know, this is how it is. No, it's great. And you know what? That speaks to a lot about the the deeper cultural and and relational connection sport has i think sometimes people forget about that how much sport can actually touch people relationally and you've spoken to that with those two events that's really important to know and uh part of the podcast too is just to hear people's relationship with sport in terms of their career or their role so thank you for sharing that we're gonna move on to some non-sports related questions now you have one last meal to eat 
You got to tell me what you're drinking, appetizers, main course, and dessert. Fantastic. Okay. All right. So my last meal, uh, what am I having? So for the appetizers, I probably have, uh, I probably have some samosas, some vegetarian and some, uh, uh, maybe some chicken or, uh, or beef samosas. I think that would be it with some uh, mulligatawny soup or a chicken noodle soup or a chicken rice soup. Again, if it's my last meal, it's not going to make sense in terms of how it flows and, and fits together. It's just food that I really like. So You just got to eat it all. <laughs> yeah, so chicken rice soup and then uh, some samosas. The main course, probably grilled chicken, green beans, and uh, mashed potatoes. Uh, it was, it was my, my comfort food. Whenever I came home from university, my mom would make that for me every time. Grilled chicken, or if it was with my kids, it would have to be, we would make chicken cordon blues. We like making that together as a family. So that would be that. And my dessert would probably be, front of our family makes something called Mississippi mud pie, which is a, a crumble. It's a uh, graham cracker base with, uh, like chocolate pudding and a whipped cream uh, on top. It's not remotely healthy for you, but it's, again, my last meal. What difference does it make? Your last meal, right? So. That would be it. Uh, in terms of a drink, uh, I'm, not a big, I'm not a big alcohol guy uh, anymore. Yeah, it could, it could be root beer for all we know. Well, probably <laughs> a water and a Dr. Pepper, knowing me well enough. So it would probably be that. And if, if I was going to drink alcohol, it would probably be a white Russian. All right, I'm going to ask you a question that you're going to be very familiar with. Okay. You're given the chance to put on a concert in your backyard. Yeah. <laughs> You're allowed to book any band or artist in the world. In history, you got to pick three and the order in which they play. So thank you again. Shout out to Ashwin. He actually came out with this question for one of my classes. So I've put it on the podcast now, as you've heard, if you've been a listener of the show. So thank you, Ashwin. So now you get to answer it. It changes every day. I actually, It really does. It depends on what I'm listening to, my mood. Again, conscious of my backyard. I'd start out with Marley, Bob Marley. Because again, if you got your friends and your family there, it's a it's a pretty good way to start out. Everybody's happy. Everybody's in a good mood. My favorite band for the last eight to nine years uh, is the National. So I would like to say that would be the band I'd have play. But as a lot of my friends have said, they're too sad and depressing. So they wouldn't want to show up, is what you're I saying. I don't want to make everybody <laughs> feel sad. So if I, it was just myself, they would 100% be in it. Uh, instead, I would probably have uh, Pearl Jam uh, be the be the second band. And uh, for the third band, uh, or to close it all out, I think I'd have to go with either Heyday Prince, like just Prince at his best, mostly, you know, he's from Minnesota, uh, where my wife's from. He also lived in Toronto. He married a, a woman from Toronto. So there's that connection there. And it's hard to not just want to listen to Prince uh, if, it's, if it's closing a night. If it wasn't for Prince, then it would be Zeppelin. But I know I'm giving five different answers, but I... I'd go with Marley. I'd go with Marley, Pearl Jam, and then uh, and then Prince. All right, sounds good. So moving on to some career stuff, what's the best career advice you've ever received? I know you gave a lot of advice earlier, but what's the best you've ever received? The best I ever received, again, goes back to Dr. Craig Risberg. And he looked at me, and he, there was a, a job posting that came up in, uh, again, I don't know how I remember these dates, and I don't remember what I'm supposed to be doing later today, but... In 2005, December of 2005, he called me into his office and he said, there's a job that's in Colorado and this is your job. They wrote it for you. And I read over it and it sounded fantastic and it was more of a generalist. And by that, it means I was going to be teaching a bunch of different classes in exercise and sports science. 
And he said, Ash, this is you. He said, you get to do some, it's a small university. It's focused on teaching and you don't have to do as much focus on research because it wasn't in an area that interests me. And I kind of was very intimidated by the research side of it. And I kept thinking like, well, what does this mean? Does this mean he doesn't think very highly of me? And I, and I asked him that. I said, like, you know, can you tell me why? And he's like, Ash, if you were going to go and try to apply for a research position, A, you wouldn't get it because that's not an area that you're very strong at right now. But B, he's like, how happy would you be if you were made to publish one to two articles a year in order to make, to get tenure? And I said, I'd be miserable. And so the advice that he gave me is that you don't have to be like everybody else. In academia, some people feel that if you're not at a really well-regarded research one institution, then it does, it's not as meaningful. The reality is just, you know, be where your feet are. Like, do the best that you can in the organization or the, the organizations that you're working for. And too often we're just thinking about, well, I want to be here in five years and, or I want to be doing this. And we're not actually just being good at where we're at right now. So his advice to me was just get to this university, learn how to teach and teach really well, learn how to develop relationships with your athletes and your students, and then everything else will take care of itself. And once I focus on that, and it's something that I, I try to pride myself on every day, I get excited like all my students do. When I see you in classes and then I see students that are talking about what they want to be doing in four months, I get genuinely excited for them. But I also want them just to kind of think about, well, we're not done yet here. So let's just figure out, like, how do we just figure out being done this semester? Or how do we just get do the best we can on today? Those are some of the things that I've, I found to be really, really beneficial and insightful. And I think it's really cool to hear people that have impacted your career, because I know I've mentioned this to you before. Some of your uh, mentorship has been helpful with my career and things that are happening in my life. So it's good to hear that there's like a cycle of people building into each other and that's how the industry continues to grow. So that's great to hear. Uh, last question here. This is a make-believe one. And uh, I'm interested to see your answer for this. If you could be any position on any team in any sport, what would it be? I think it would be like a backup point guard that gets like decent playing time on a like a national a national championship level team. In the sense that, like, I know my limitations. Like, as much as I'd love to imagine myself being on center court at Wimbledon playing against Federer. But you can. This is the make-believe portion. <laughs> yeah, then I guess if, you're, if we're going 100% make-believe, then, yeah, I'd be playing Wimbledon final uh, men's singles. Uh, that would be it. Actually, no, it would be men's doubles. The all-whites. Yeah. <laughs> the all-whites, absolutely. Uh, that would be it. Uh, but Headband, no headband. Headband? Oh, headband, of course. Oh, yeah, this is when I had longer longer hair than I have right now. There you go. Yeah. All right, that ends our rapid-fire segment. Ash, if, I know you're not a big social media guy, but if our audience wants to find more about you or what you do, where can they find you? Sure. I, uh, Twitter, it's Ashwin J. Patel. Uh, you can you know, Google that or however you search on Twitter. And then uh, uh, LinkedIn, I'm actually you know, a little bit more present on, and so you can just kind of look my name up on uh, on LinkedIn. I'll, Theo, I'll let you kind of put that out or share that with the listeners because I'm not 100% sure what my handle is. And then uh, email. I've got a website with a, a colleague of mine, uh, Noah, Dr. Noah Gentner, and it's a sport and well, uh, sport and well uh, consulting. 
So if you just looked up sportandwell.com, then you'll be able to find uh, us there. Uh, I'm happy to answer any questions that your listeners may have. I'll leave all that information in the show description so you can check that out if you want to contact Ashwin. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. So Ashwin, thank you for your time. appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to share about your journey. It's been a really interesting journey, and I'm sure there's more to come as you move on in the mental skills world in sports. So thanks again for coming. Thanks for having me, Theo. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out for the next episode where I interview Alina Dorman, a former member of University of Toronto's women's volleyball team and current member of Team Canada's national beach volleyball team. Hear about her journey from indoor volleyball to beach volleyball and her experiences with the highly successful University of Toronto women's volleyball squad. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Juan underscore and underscore only underscore sports and see some of my commenting highlights on YouTube at the channel Juan and Only Sports. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.